podcast world. This is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and joining me today, we have Zara Alane. Hello, hello. Today, we want to give a shout out to our location sponsor. We interviewed this gentleman in episode 8, Mr. Irvin Davis of Davis Eco Life. We are here at the EcoPod in city of Grand Bazaar, Trinidad and Tobago. Irvin? Yeah, good night, everybody. How are you doing, sir? Just tell everybody a little bit about EcoPod. Well, finally, I, I should say finally, we are about to hit the road in terms of being up and running. We installed the solar system to power the pod a couple of weeks ago, so we still kind of have it under testing, but it's performing, for the most part, the way how it's perform. In terms of an update, that's where we are. Okay, great, great, great. So today we have one of your industry pairs environmental consultant and teacher, Shan Coffee-Young. Good night, everybody, and I appreciate you getting my name right. Well, after you booked me on the phone the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. Thank you, Kevin. But, but, but Shan, what I don't understand is that, all right, so you, your name is spelled S-I-A-N, right? Correct. Right? I have a friend named Shan, and you know, so it kind of tricks me up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So your name is spelled S-I-A-N. It's pronounced Shan. Yes. Your company's name is S-I-E- S-I-E-L. And it's pronounced Sial. Sial, yes. Now you understand why the English language is so hard for people <laughs> to learn, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. But yes, S-I-A-N for my name is Shan, but for S-I for the company is Sai. So there's a difference. Sai, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so tell us what the company does, how the name came about. I know there's an interesting story. I know there's a bit of Welsh in there somewhere. Yes, Shan is actually Welsh. It means God's gracious gift. My aunt lives in Wales and has been for more than 40 years. She's the one that actually gave me the name. Okay. Yeah, so she told my mother, okay, if you have a girl, name her Shan. <laughs> so that's how that happened. But the name Sayel is actually a combination of the first two letters of my name and the last two of my husband's middle name. But it's also a play on the French word C-I-E-L meaning sky. Okay. Right? So it's a joint, collaborative, flying bird sort of effort. But I understand there's some kind of turtle involved in this. Yeah, somewhere. so in the logo, the logo represents three different things. It's land, sea. So the turtle itself is a creature that can do both the land and the sea. Right. Right? So our logo is actually also a leaf. So if you look at it properly, you'll see it's a leaf. But the blue edges of this, I know the listeners can't really see, but I'll describe it. The blue on the bottom is actually the turtle's legs emerging from the water. And the top of the leaf is the head of the turtle. So that represents land, sea, and because of the play on the word sky, that's where I get the air from. So all three are the three crucial tenets of environment, land, sea, air. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... Also interesting to me, so your um, Jamaican colleague right next to you here, he started off studying history, then he was a chef on a cruise ship, and then there was some frog tail involved, and now he's in Trinidad. Yes. Right? So so he didn't just decide from all along that he wanted to be in this space, but mm-hmm. you you studied this from since you were in secondary school. You teach sciences in secondary school. Yes. Now you- so I taught physics at secondary school. Physics is like the best science. I don't care what anybody else says. Right. So I taught physics 
and integrated science at secondary school. But my love for environment started as a child. My dad is into scouting. He still is, actually. He's now the assistant district commissioner for Port of Spain. He had big posts, as I'd tell him. All right. And um, it's because of daddy taking us on camping trips. Um, never mind, I was the girl. I was still in brownies and girl guides and all of those things. But I was very much along with daddy all the time. And scouts have a conservation rule where you always leave a place cleaner than you've met it. So he would take us on hikes and, and different activities. And we had to clean up, not just after ourselves, but after other people. So that is something that stayed with me my entire life. So I studied physics as well, too, at UE. And then I did my master's in environmental engineering. I actually wanted to do the management program, but they didn't. They disbanded that. They discontinued it, rather. So the only other option was the engineering. But because of my physics background, it was easy for me to transition over to an engineering-based program. Okay. So I have been blessed enough to study and work in the field that I love, which is not many people get that opportunity. And you always love that field? Always, always. Actually, I got a scholarship to the University of Leeds to study structural geology and geophysics. <laughs> but, <laughs> right? Um, but I got a partial scholarship and I had to raise $250,000 to be able to go because it was expensive, even though I still, even though I got the partial skull. So, wasn't able to do it in time to leave. I had to defer until another year to try and raise the funds. Still didn't manage to raise all in time. So I was like, you know what? I always loved environment. It has always been something that I've naturally, that has naturally attracted me. So I'm going to study environment. And that's how I ended up doing the environmental engineering program. And no regrets whatsoever. It really opened my eyes up to a lot of different things because as I said, it's very engineering based. So wastewater engineering, how to construct wastewater plants. I even did a wastewater. I could operate a wastewater plant. Eh? I did an operator course. So I can operate a plant. <laughs> I, I don't want to, but I can. Right? So I've been in the field for over 13 years. I don't look it. But yes, I've been around the block for a little, a little while. Most of my experience has been in waste and mining. I have worked for state companies in that sector. One of my achievements that I'm proud of is my Fulbright Hubert Humphrey Fellowship, where I studied at Cornell University, and I did quarry rehabilitation. That's in New York, right? Yes, in upstate Right, New York. Right, right, right. That's a difference. Because <laughs> as my father said, Ithaca, right? doll knows. Yes, Ithaca. So I studied quarry rehabilitation with them. And that program was really for what they call mid-career professionals. I didn't feel like I was in the middle of any career. But that's how they classed us. Because it was a combination of academic and professional experience. So we had to engage with people in our field, movers and shakers, see what they're doing, learn from them and be able to take back home those lessons and implement them. And I was the only fellow from the Caribbean ever to study anything in quarrying and mining at all. So when I started, they were like, okay, what are we going to do with Sean? We kind of don't know because we have no benchmark. We have nothing. So I had to make the program what I wanted it to be. So I traveled the country. I met 
as many academic professors as I could because, I mean, I have access to them at Cornell. I did a lot of field trips, a lot of visits. I went to composting facilities and the mine reclamation unit in New York, in the state of New York. And I attended conferences just so that I can be able to meet with my colleagues in the field and learn from them. And then another crucial part is that I was able to work with the largest producer of aggregate in the U.S. because they were responsible for the entire Midwest. So in the Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois. So I toured those four states regularly, just meeting different quarries. I actually brought home rocks. Sorry, I have a fascination with rocks. Immigration didn't give you any... No, no, no. I'm sorry. Let me don't say that. Oh, gosh, they'll say this, Sean. <laughs> But there was this completely round, smooth rock because of their geography and geology in the U.S., especially that region with the glaciers and how they melted. So all of that I had to learn about. The rock was completely smooth, like a ball smooth. And I was like, okay, I am so taking this back home. So I have a round rock. I have pieces of granite. I have pieces of gold. I have salt from a salt mine. You have pieces of gold in your house? Yeah. Just, yeah, just in the house, yeah, just... Well, you had to cut through the rock together, so I don't know who wants to get... Whoever want to do that, they can, um... Yeah. But it there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> so... All right, so how do we get from there to Sahel Environmental? I know you spent a lot of years at, um... Is it Swim Call? Yes. So, I worked at Swim Call and National Quarries... So I worked in the public sector for many years. Um, SILE came about because one of my main responsibilities at those organizations was environmental education because it played off the fact that I taught. I was a teacher. But I realized that we were doing a lot of the same. We were giving people the information in the same way and expecting them to change and act differently. And I realized, but we can't keep doing this over and over and over and over and nothing is happening. We are truly insane. So after my last tenure at Swim Call, I decided, you know what? I want to be the one that does things differently. I want to show people that it can be done differently. And if the end result is that we get people to act, then that's what we need to do. We need to do everything to encourage that behavior change, to encourage them to start not only thinking, but translate that thought into an action and a positive one at that. So that's why I started SAIL because I just wanted to plainly and simply to be a different voice, to be a different mechanism for people to start changing because I realized we were doing a lot of the same and nothing was changing. So that's what I used to start Sile. That's how Sile started, yeah. So you decided to strike out on your own? Yes. One, what made you think, this is what I'm going to do and I can definitely do this? And two, what challenges did you face when you decided to make oh that leap? God. Okay. Um, <laughs> I would be very honest to say that it was not an easy decision at all. My husband, actually, who has been an entrepreneur for more than 18 years, he's never worked for anybody. So after my last um, stint, he was like, you know, you know, you could do this, right? And I was like, no, I don't think so. I will just apply for some more jobs. And he's like, all right, but I think you could do it. So I didn't listen to him. 
I applied for the jobs. But then I realized, wait, so I am going up for jobs with people that I trained. And these people are getting the jobs before me. Really? How did yeah. happen? Why did happen? So I came back on my telephone. I was like, I don't understand what's going on. Is it that people not understanding what I'm saying? Am I speaking a different language or something? I said, because, you know, I remember one of the guys that I trained. From the time he's like, Sean, well, congratulations. Huh? Because when he saw me walk into the interview, he's like, there's no way that I am getting this if Sean is here as well. Because she trained me. So when he found out that I didn't get it, he's like, nah, I don't know what happened there, but something weird happened. So that happened a few times. <laughs> and then I decided, you know what? Okay, I think I'm fighting it. I'm not going to fight it anymore. So that's when we actually registered the company. But in that first year, Zara, of registering the company, I also was pregnant with our last child. So that first year, I didn't do anything. I was full on mommy mode. After that is when I decided, okay, let me get myself back out there. So let me start doing things. So I created Facebook page for the business. My father-in-law worked with me to create the logo and all of that. So I started getting little things. And I'm going to feel like I'm a business owner now. Little clothes, little t-shirts. It t-shirt. sounds like the, like the whole community was, you know, was helping you out. Very much yeah, so. Everybody pitched um, in. Yeah. So I had a lot of... I had support from my in-laws, I had support from my husband to really put myself out there again. And, but some of the challenges, of course, is people don't know who you are. So number one thing is to get people to at least know you exist. So I had to, I am an introvert. I don't like traditional networking. <laughs> I completely understand right? what you're saying. So, but I also remember when I was doing my fellowship, one of our facilities has said, because I told him, I was like, but I, I don't like, you know, going up and just introducing myself to people and telling them about my accomplishments. He's like, Sean, listen, one, you're in the U.S. Two, if you don't open your mouth, people will not know who you are and they will not know if you need help. So open your mouth. When you want to retreat, you can retreat to your introverted self after. So with that... I said, okay. So I had to introduce myself. Hi, I'm Sean Young, Managing Director of Silent Environmental and so on. So I had to get used to doing that. So that was the first thing. So networking events, reconnecting with old colleagues, letting them know that I've started a business. So going back into my pack of cards and, okay, right, I need to call him, I need to call him, I need to call her, just to let them know, okay, guys, well, I'm no longer at Swim Call or wherever, wherever they met me, but I have started my own business now, let them know what I'm doing. It's like, so in case you need any of my services, you know, feel free to reach out to your girl, right? So how did those, I mean, just to uh, just, uh, interject there, how did mm-hmm. those calls go? Because, I mean, usually... That's very important for people, right? You mm-hmm. know, you're about to start doing something. You need to reconnect with old friends, people you haven't spoken to for X yes. amount of years. So mm-hmm. is it like, hey, I know I didn't speak to you for four years, but um, I need this. <laughs> so how, how do you kind of massage into that and just kind of do it in a seamless manner? I normally just reminded them of where they met me. And thankfully, I have a pretty good memory. So I remind them of where we met. Oh, bright scholar, right? <laughs> so thank you. Where we met. And how we met. So I would say, you know, 
I remember when you needed so 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 I was the officer that you came and you met and so 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 and they're like, Yes, son, I remember you. How are you going? And I was like, I'm going great. I just called to let you know that I am I've started my own business now and this is what I'm doing. So if you ever need any of my services or to please spread it in your network. Because it may not necessarily be them who needed the service. But if they knew somebody who did, then that will also work. But one of the other things, too, that I did in the beginning is that I got a coach. I got a business coach. Because I was transitioning from being an employee to an entrepreneur. Talking about 10 years of being an employee. So in the second year of business, I tried to read a lot, watch a lot of videos about entrepreneurship changing mindset, things like that. Just to reprogram my mind because I realized that I was still thinking like an employee. So I had to change the way that I thought. So I had a coach who was able to help me with those initial things, identifying my ideal client, doing client avatars and all of these things. I was like, what language is she speaking? Because this is not English. Is this Carissa by chance? Carissa, yes. And I also had another coach called Adana Austin. So I had two coaches. Um, and they did very different things to me. Very, very different. Carissa's work with me was very strategic. And she actually opened up my eyes to a lot of things that she saw in me that I could have achieved. So one of the things that I love interacting with children, I love working with children. And I was, I said, well, I want to find something that I could do. So she's like, so Sean, why don't you have a school program? Why don't you create a, a kid's arm to your business? She's the first person that said that. And I was like, mind blown, light bulb, okay. And even though she said that a year ago, I only just started working on it. But it planted a seed. And I realized that this was something that I wanted to do. Even though I may not get to it now, it's always here. So subconsciously, I knew that, okay, this is something that I wanted to get into. So I hired a coach. I took time to read and listen to videos just to really get my mindset prepared for this thing. Because I was one of those do-gooders in school, on a roll student. Yeah, one of those. So... I never dealt with failure well at all. <laughs> so if something didn't go the way that I had hoped or planned, that sent me into like a downward, what is going on? I don't understand how I didn't do this well. And I'm so used to doing everything so well all the time. So that needed to switch. That needed to happen like fast. So I could have gotten the push that I needed to succeed because I realized I was still the school shan, the employee shan, who always has to do good all the time, never fail, you know, but my husband says failure is the mother of success. It's not like you have a good husband, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time reference your husband, give him a little, yeah, yeah, little stripes. Give him a little stripes. <laughs> all right, Mr. Young, we see. <laughs> but, you know, I had to understand that as well. So he would say that over and over and over, but in my mind, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, that's not making no sense to me. What do you mean? Failure is the mother of success. What is that? But eventually, I had to understand that if I didn't fail and I didn't learn, how can I be successful? Yeah, you fail forward, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we understand how your education services started, right? But what are the other products and services that you guys offer? 
Okay, so I mentioned the school program. It's called the Saberwing Sustainable School Program. It's Saber. named Saberwing. It's named after the white-tailed Saberwing hummingbird. It's one of our environmentally sensitive species, ah. like the ocelot and the pawee, right? So that's where I got the name from. Yeah, those right. things. <laughs> so, um, so I have that program. I also have a greener business initiative for corporate entities where I help them introduce an environmental program into their business operations. So recycling, if they want to switch from styrofoam to compostables, energy conservation, water conservation, that I help them through that process. I also do quarry rehabilitation, right? I didn't go, I didn't go to school for all that and then to just leave it there, right? So I prepare rehabilitation plans for quarries, but I use a landscape architecture perspective because to me, so much can be done with a quarry post-mining. It can be put to so many other uses other than planting crops and grass and trees. So my approach is to have an integrated discussion with the community as well so that they have input. So that's a quarry rehabilitation and then I do the social marketing and behavior change campaigns. So if you have a specific behavior that you want to create or so you want to get people to. So I always tell people saying you want people to recycle is too broad a thing. What specifically do you want them to do? We help you drill that down, get to the specific action, and then put a program together to encourage that action through prompts and reminders and different things like that. And two more additions. I have a paper recycling program with schools. And I am now looking into creating a product because one of the things that I realized from looking at my other environmental organizations across the world is that one of the major things that they have is that they've created a product that they can sell. And that's the business model side. So you'll have the philanthropic side, but you'll have the business side because you need to keep running. You need to be sustainable. I really hate the gimme, gimme, hands outstretched approach. I don't like that at all. That's why I registered as a limited liability company because my colleagues in the field told me I was crazy. What did they register as? Non-profit organization. Why don't you want to make profit? (laughs) (laughs) So, because when I told them that, it's like, so Sean, why? Would you do that? You know, you can't get grants and stuff, right? I was like, yeah, I understand that. So another one of the things that I realized was lacking is the whole issue of social entrepreneurship. Because we have the NGOs that apply for grants and so on. But that whole mechanism, so even though I'm registered as an LLC, I'm treated as any other company, any other major conglomerate, rather than, okay, this is a company that, has a great impact. Their major thing is to create an impact. They're going to make money, yes, but it's over a long-term period of time. So they may not necessarily be able to make all the money from jump. So to give them time to create the income and create the business streams, we need to treat them a little differently. And that is something that I realize we don't recognize social entrepreneurs in Trinidad and Tobago. I call myself that because I recognize that that's what I do and that's what my company represents. But if you're not big company, you're an NGO. Okay, so just to, just to be clear, social mm-hmm. entrepreneurship is 
basically your focus is on impact impact and purpose before, before profit. profit but profit yeah. eventually right but profit of course because yeah. it's not a hobby right yeah right so you're really tuning to giving back in terms of teaching people about yes. stuff before yeah. before you kind of start to get into the profit aspect of it and and as you mentioned large companies a lot of large companies are not keen on their corporate social responsibilities that they have no idea what it means so mm-hmm. if it's not if it's not something that they're selling you something mm-hmm. and and it's part of a promotion then they're not into it it's not about giving back and you know, so that that's something that I, I find very interesting yeah because most of the time some of these corporate entities think that if i just throw money at it that's my csr well i give them money so how could you tell me i'm not being responsible <laughs> but that's all you did you did not allow your staff to become involved in the project in any way, or you yourself as the managing director or CEO. You did not try to, to look at the long-term progress of this project or medium to long-term. How can I get involved? How can I help the community grow? Things like that. You know, you think, okay, well, I'll tip into the pocket and I'll give them, you know, I'll give them some money and, and that will be all. But that's not where I'll it stops. take a picture with them. Yeah, and then we take a picture. <laughs> and, then we, yeah, and then we hang it up on the wall and we say that we are exercising our corporate social responsibility. For me, that makes absolutely no sense. Well, yeah, it sounds like they just do it for like their own branding and for their yeah. own yeah. goodwill. So and- I want them to dig a little deeper when you think of being socially responsible. How are you impacting the community? All right, so how do we get them to dig deeper though? Of course, that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a little work. But it, of course, it means changing, getting them to see that a different approach is required. Showing them to long term, this is what your impact can be. So that at the end of the day, you could not only say, yes, I gave them money, but I was able to help 54% of these people get jobs. I was able to say that because these people were participating my, in our program that we funded, 12% of them are now entrepreneurs. They now started their own businesses from it. That is true impact because now you can measure it. It is tangible. It's something that you can measure. Mm-hmm. So we have to allow them to see what it can be and to show them, okay, we have to monitor and evaluate so that you get measurable impacts. So that now you can share that with your other colleagues and stuff in the field and things like that as well. Too. But so in addition to, the, to being able to measure the impact for a CSR initiative, for example, how do you then make the business case to the private sector of you need to green your business? Because I think that people have an idea that environmental conservation is important. We all need to be more green. But many private sector organizations looking at the bottom line. Correct. How do you get them to see this is actually better for your bottom line? Do you have particular metrics that you use to measure the impact that SIL brings or that the programs bring to the company? Yes. So what we do is that we will work with them too and we use our particular metric system to show, okay, if you add this program by this period of time, you would have reduced your spend by X amount of dollars, or you would have reduced your productivity time by X percent or X amount of hours so that they understand, oh, okay, so if I do this, then I'm saving time. Or if I do this, then I'm saving money. Because as Zara rightfully said, everything for them is about the pocket and the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So if they cannot understand how they're going to save money or save time or make their operations itself a bit more seamless 
because those are the things that they're looking at as well outside of knowing what the environmental the positive things would you know adding environmental initiatives and all of that is because even that has to be explained because some of them don't they don't get that right one of the key things that i also tell them though is that adding environmental activities have medium to long-term results. There are things that you can do in the short term, yes, but you have to allow it to run its course for a period of time before you can evaluate what the benefits to you are. So once you understand that and you're willing to invest the time and the initial money starting up, because with anything that you want to change in your company, you have to spend money in the initial phase. You want to switch out a piece of equipment for one that is uses less energy or works a little more efficiently. Then you have to spend the money, right, on it. So even doing things like that requires spend. So once they understand that that is what we have to do or that is what they would have to do, then I think that makes the process a little bit easier to accept and to work with. So I, th- I think that one of the interesting things that you had mentioned was your focus on behavior change. Yes. So you came into the space because you wanted to create a new voice and you wanted to actually change the way that people did things. Yes. How do you do that? Because <laughs> people are very stuck in their ways yes. and they might start to recycle and have great going for a week, maybe even a month. And then they fall off. And they fall off a cliff yeah. and it goes back to throwing it wherever. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, for me, I understand that those things can happen. So the falling off the cliff is not necessarily, I try to re- remind them not to beat themselves up too much if they fall off the cliff. It's okay, right? Just let's get things going again. So the strategy that I use is called community-based social marketing. And with that, it uses different elements or different mechanisms to get people to change their behavior. That is something that hotels use to get people to save water, for instance, or reduce their towel usage. So they tell you, okay, so they have the little cards in the room and they say, okay, if you do not wish to change your towels, leave it hanging on the, on the rack. If you want to change your towels, put them on the floor. So those things are called prompts or reminders. Another thing that they they use as well is that they talk to their clients about the initiatives that they are undertaking. Okay, so we're here at this hotel and we're here at Palace Green. And at Palace Green, we are really proud about the amount of water that we save. So with you being our guest, we would really like you to jump on board this project because you would become, and paint a nice pretty picture, And then there's the principles of persuasion. So one of the key factors, of course, is that we have to be persuaded to act differently in a variety of ways. So when you're listening to me, Sean, making sense. So I am the expert. So you would listen to what I'm saying. You trust what I'm saying. You may also like me a little bit. So that that adds to the whole dynamic. So it's likability. That's six tenants. I can't remember them all right now, but they're called the six principles of persuasion. And that falls within my strategy of social marketing to get people to change their behavior. And then we have using um, like popular faces because that's what the B-Mobiles and the Digicels and all these people do, you know. The influencers. People, yes. So they realize that people like Bungie Garland, people like Rode. So, okay, so he's doing this then. Okay, and I want to be just like him. So I will do it just because. And that's one strategy that is used as well, right? And then 
how you couch your graphics is also very important. Do you want to get straight to the point or do you want to, as we said, go around the mulberry bush a little bit? So you put nice pictures because I remember there was one ad that showed a little girl standing in a pool of oil. And that ad was to get drivers to not change their oil regularly. So it's different. So you had the direct thing, change your filters every three days. But then you have that picture of that little girl just standing all drenched in oil because you're just wasting the oil. Right? So there are different strategies that you can use. That's just the one that I use. That's the one that I realized have worked during my own research. And I actually spent some time learning the strategy as well. So that is what I utilize to get people to change behaviors. You have to do something seven times for it to become habit. So I have to remind you seven times before it becomes second nature. It's not seven times in the same manner, right? It's seven times different in ways. different places. So, okay. Sometimes I tell people my brain is like a sieve, right? I don't always remember to walk with my reusable water bottle. So I would put up little things all over the house, put it on the fridge, put it on the bedroom door, put it on the wall, put it on the front door, just to remind me. And then I would tell my husband, all right, don't forget to remind me to take my water bottle. Huh? So all of that is getting me to change my behavior, to remember I need to walk with my reusable water bottle. So eventually, after enough of that has happened, you don't have to tell me anymore. Now it's in the car. Just pull it out and, all right, so your girl got to go. So it is really utilizing a lot of different mechanisms because I realize we like to, I tell people the building of awareness is as tall as the Twin Towers. To me, we build enough awareness. It's time we move away from that and start acting. So we just need to realize that we can reach people in different ways. I have a video series called the Mother Earth series where I pay the trainee Mother Earth. I don't know if you saw it. If you didn't see it, you saw it, you saw it, Kevin? I saw a little thing, yeah. All right, you need to watch it. You need to watch it. Right. (laughs) I will, I will. (laughs) So that is just a different, that is adding humor to getting people. So the first video we did was about littering and stuff. And people was like, Sean, that is like so fun. I mean, I learned, but it was just like so funny. So knowing that you have to reach people in different ways. People are visual. They learn from listening. They like to feel and touch things to learn. So you have to recognize that I have to adopt all of these strategies to really get them to change behavior. Just giving them brochures and flyers is a waste of time and a waste of resources as far as I'm concerned. Because that people just take the flyer, chuck it in their handbag, and they're gone. They're not even going to look at it a second time after they finish talking to you. So knowing you have to get them in different ways to encourage them to change their behavior. So that's what that's normally what we do. Is there a particular strategy to achieve impact by working with children? Is the hope that they go home and tell their parents very excitedly, mommy and daddy, we're going to start recycling? Children are very much agents of change. Our daughter, we were walking by the Quasi in Sour, and she saw there was this open lot of land, and she saw some bottles and some juice boxes and stuff just scattered around. And she's like, mommy, why did the people throw things there? That is to be recycled. And I'm like, oh, be still my heart. (laughs) You know, so I have, because I started teaching her from very early. Okay, these things we don't throw in the garbage. They are to be recycled. So we have a separate bag in the house for recyclables. So she knows, I was like, okay, now I could just tell her, go and put this in the kitchen for me. She knows where to put the water bottle. Yeah. Her brother, three years old, still forgets that time, but it's okay. He's three. I forgive him, right? But, um... (laughs) Pressure in that house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to follow him at times. But 
I realized that they are the ones that we really have to start working with because us adults are hard-headed and set in our ways and we don't want to change and why do I have to do that and that's not my responsibility where the children are like no mommy but I want the place to be clean so I have to pick up after myself I can't litter you know so things like that I do a lot of school presentations as well I'm just talking to the young people about one of the questions I ask them is, why do you even think it's important to protect the environment? Why? Why is it necessary? Why is it something that we have to do? Why we can't just leave the place stink? And then they tell me, because, miss, we need to breathe. Because, miss, we need the place to be clean so that we have places to go online and hang out with our friends. You know, so they now, in their own way, are realizing that this is something that we have to start doing. We cannot continue to behave in the same way we can't continue to always be throwing garbage out of the car and things like that so i am a firm believer that children are the agents of change and that's where we need to start but how much do you think that is purely the innocence of the young mm-hmm. versus something that they will basically adopt throughout their entire lifetime um i am living proof that it works because my dad would one, we would have a bag in the car for garbage. So we never were allowed to throw anything. I mean, he already allowing us to eat, which is, <laughs> you right. know, going against the grain as it is. So he would have his little, little bag for garbage in the car. So we were never allowed to litter. That's why that's one of my pet peeves. I detest littering. I will stop the car and make you go outside and pick it up. I am, yeah, that's me. So I... No, because it worked with me and I'm seeing that it works with my own daughter. Yes, there is some innocence in it. Yes, it's about they do have that, especially at her age, because she's almost five of wanting to please mommy and daddy. But when you hit teens and the teenagers are in that rebellious stage, but still realizing that we have to do something different. I realize that it is working and the different strategies and working with them to get them to realize that you guys are the next future leaders. You guys are the innovators. You can create things that don't exist to make our lives easier, but also protect the environment. So there's an edible sandwich wrap. It's made out of seaweed. Uh, that does not sound delicious. <laughs> Same thing that they use for sushi, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's quite delicious. The same sargasm seaweed that comes up on our shores at different points in time during the year, they've taken that same seaweed and made edible wrap. So there's a video that's circulating where you can literally wrap your sandwich in it and eat your sandwich with the wrap on. And these girls are looking at me and these young men are looking at me like, what? What are you saying? So, no. So do you sell that product? Because I know you guys sell some sort of vegware. I am an advocate for all things environmental. Right. Once it's good for the environment, you could get me to talk about it. So in the beginning, when vegware came out, I was spreading the word about it, right? And letting people know about Because she's a, a business owner, just like myself. And to... Really Vegware is a local business? It's a Trinidad business or a Caribbean business? It or? is... Vegware is British. It comes from the UK. Okay. So it's an international brand. And it's one of many brands that are available in Trinidad right now. Right. But they also have feelers up the islands and so on. So you have Vegware, you have Bioware, you have Tableware, you have different... You have World-centric, you have different brands. Do those guys also offer like those... um 
alternatives to styrofoam boxes yes. in those lunch places yes. and stuff. Okay. Yes. So there are a lot of, and that's a good thing. There are a lot of yeah. businesses, catering companies that realizing, hey, you know what? We feel passionately about the environment. We want to do something different. And we realize it starts with us. So we are going to switch out our styrofoam. Now, the thing is, the styrofoam is way cheaper than the compostable alternative. Huh? But because they feel so passionately about the environment and wanting to do differently and reduce their own impacts because they understand their food boxes are ending up in a drain somewhere, that kind of thing, they have decided to bear the cost of switching to these compostable options. And one of the things I want to encourage too is a lot of people have been giving me stories where they carry their own containers to food places and people tell them, no, you can't get your food in your own container. Now, if I pay in fit, right? Why do you want to give me it in my own container? I pay in fit. You understand? The same food that you're going to put in the styrofoam box. Well, I, I'm assuming a lot of the times they may believe that you, you, your container too big. So <laughs> <laughs> now, if it's bring, a case that but, it's too big, they could think that it's unsanitary. But here's what. I am not going to deliberately... Let you put food in a container that is unsanitary for my own self. I am not going to do that. But jump in a, a little bit, if I may. A lot of these things are, I mean, there seems to be an international movement all over the place, except Trinidad and Tobago. Um, you just had somewhere in Europe where they indicated that they're going to cut out drinking straws. Yes. So they're no longer going to use drinking. And they're actually banning styrofoam and all plastics that are not recyclable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think locally what needs to happen is these things have to be driven by corporate and also government. Yes. And if there are policies that indicate that, okay, great, as of 2019, we're no longer going to be using styrofoam, then we're, we're going to find the alternatives. Yeah. And eventually, if enough people are using the alternative, then the costs for the alternatives will go, go down. down. Yeah. So yeah, I think, you know, it needs to be driven a lot by policy. But I, I feel here like it doesn't seem like policy something for these things that people are interested in. Yeah. in, in so making. Sarah and I have been around and we've probably gone to a few conferences where we've heard the same things on multiple occasions. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you're very, very right. Now, Tobago, we're one island, right? We're one country, two islands. Tobago, because they are heavily tourism-based, mm -hmm. they have started, because I worked with the secretary for infrastructure quarries and the environment with getting the ban on styrofoam started in Tobago. Great. They're going to start from next week. They have a no styrofoam day campaign mm -hmm. where, but it's, it's going to be in the Charlottesville, the countryside, Charlottesville, Castara side, where all of the food establishments in those areas will not use styrofoam. Okay. Right. And that is just their way of, it's like pilot testing it before they launch it on a larger scale. Because, as I said, I worked with them to get the bill passed. So that was the first stomping block, right? That's good. Understanding what it means, how it affects us. And thankfully, the secretary is very much involved, and he's an advocate for environmental initiatives, very much so. So it, it was kind of an easy sell for him and working with him to get that done. And the thing is... Those things have to be guided by policy. Yeah, yeah. And our smaller island 
counterparts have been doing a lot more than we have been doing. They once looked to us because we are the oil and gas rich country to be the leaders. But we are still behind. We are still behind. We, thankfully, yes, there are some little changes that have been happening, like the eye care program and different things that have been happening. But recycling in this country is still voluntary. It's not mandatory. So I will recycle because I care. But there's nobody making me recycle. There's no law to govern it. I'm not being penalized if I don't, as has been happening in other parts of the world. Great. I, I want to go back a little to something you mentioned. You, you spoke about the fact that you go into companies and you, you, you try to get them to get into the whole business of recycled, of stuff that in any way would lower their operational costs. But to a large extent, you have to educate very much. I think that that's the first stage. You educate and then hopefully. But what were the general responses? Because you spoke about it, but how were the uptake from both in terms of the employees mm-hmm. and also upper level management? What were the general? What kind of obstacles? You want me to be honest? Yes. Yes, please. That's what this podcast <laughs> is all about. It wasn't as easy as I thought it would have been. They did not jump on it as I thought they would have or that I think that they need to. And the thing is, I always try to to sit and think, okay, what is... So I would be given different reasons. Logistically, it's, you know, not at this time. Sean, this is fantastic, you know. I mean, I really want this to happen, but... But, right? So... Lip service. Yes. So I always just kind of sit and re-strategize and say, okay, what's another approach I can get them at? You know, show them what their counterparts are doing and how much money they're saving. Different things. I always sit and go back to the drawing board and see, okay, what else can I do? How else can I paint this picture? Because as you rightfully said, all of my programs are coupled with education. Every last one. Because I realized the importance of educating them. About not just the program itself, but just generally speaking. Because it's a mindset shift that has to happen. Waste is no longer something that you just throw away. Waste is a valuable resource. People make money off of waste. I was watching a video with a six-year-old boy made 21,000 US dollars off of recycling cans. 21,000 at six? So if he continues, you know, my boy's a millionaire by the time he hit teen or no? I'm sure your kids. Yeah, so I showed, them, I showed them the video because he's there riding his little truck. <laughs> and he's collecting his, his recyclables in the tray of his little truck and he's going to he's going to the company. But that too has to be coupled with the deposit system. Glass is the only thing that has a deposit on it. That's why you don't really see glass anywhere. Because you could take your glass bottles back and you get a little tensile to funding. Right? The more glass you go with, the more money you make. But all right, so this guy in the US, this kid in the US, it mm-hmm. sounds like he was able to do this because he had an environment, the US environment has already fosters that fosters right. and rewards yes. that kind of behavior. Exactly. How exactly. give me a roadmap here, Sean. How do we get Trinidad and Tobago? How do we get the Caribbean? How do we get us to that state where it's incentivized so that I tend to do that way. People could actually make environmental sustainability, environmental cleanliness a business, attractive business. Policy is definitely very important and getting the rules, laws and legislation in place. Like right now, plastic bottles doesn't have a deposit system on it. No charge. If you carry back your bottles, you don't make anything. You're just doing it because you care about the environment, right? 
So in order for people to want to get into the business like I have, you have to create the mechanism. So pass the bottle bill or whatever bill you, whatever name you want to call it, so that the collection of recyclables is now monetized. So people will realize, okay, so I can collect, I can make money off of the collection, and then now I can turn this into a useful product. So I'm making money from both ends, from the collection end and from the post-recycling end as well, so that they know, okay, this is a viable opportunity. And then most of the things is the, the access to capital. That is an issue because I went to a session recently with a lot of young people, younger than me, who said, you know, I have these, you're basically saying I have these great ideas, I want to do things, I'm coming fresh out of school, but I have no money. I spend all my money on school fees, but this is something that I want to do. How do I access money? How do I access startup capital <laughs> to get the ball rolling? I'm not saying fund me the entire time. I just need something to get me started. And so that's why I said the whole thing of social entrepreneurship is not recognized because the only way you could get the money is if you go and get a loan and then if you don't have a track record you can't get the loan and right. but if you're an NGO you could apply for a grant so you see right but aside from that whole chicken and egg dilemma right there yeah if they can't access the money how do they still get started and still make that impact I would advise them to use what they can. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, I didn't have much money, thousands of dollars, but I realized that there was a gap in the system and I needed to find ways and means of getting things done. Use the free mechanisms to advertise as much as I can. So use the social media, the the Instagram, the LinkedIn, the, the free mechanisms as much as possible until... People start to see me and realize, oh, wait, so, okay, so, Sean, you have a paper recycling program, so do you come to South? And then I say, okay, well, if you want me to come to your home in South, it's X amount of dollars. Okay, sure, no problem. Okay. So now, by putting the word out using the free mediums, mm-hmm. I'm now able to get money coming in. So it's essentially content marketing right That's there. right, yes. Okay. So now that you brought up money, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so we move from impact to money. Now that you brought up money. So you've been doing this business for two and a half years, roughly? Yes. So it's, the company has been formally registered. This year will be three years. But I've been actively in the business for almost two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because remember the first year I took a year off. So. Right, right, mm-hmm. right, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you, know, you had to breed the, um, the future millionaire. That's right. Right. <laughs> so which aspect of your business would you say brings you most revenue to you right now or since you started the collection program actually is the biggest income earner for me right now. And now things in terms of the education part is now because, and the reason why it's hard, Kevin, is because of what was put out before, before what I walked into. I walked into freeness. I walked into or what was deemed as freeness. Because if I... I'm working for a particular company and I'm being paid a salary and I have to go out and give a presentation. It might be seen as being free, but I'm being paid a salary, right? So I walked into that. So it's having to know, okay, how do I change that whole dynamic? How do I get people to want to pay me for services that they may think is free? So that in itself is something that I'm still working on that. I'm still tweaking things to make sure that I sell value and that people see that they get value from me and in terms of how I engage with them as well because that's another thing that people are drawn to you if they like you if they know you and they trust you 
I always hear that no like and trust thing all the time, especially now as an entrepreneur. So how do you build that trust? All right. So constant interaction and engagement, following up. I I lead with my personality. So people get comfortable I, with how I, you know, I laugh a lot. I like to crack jokes. So people get really comfortable with Sean, the person. And once they interact with me and I come and I do the collections from them. And this, uh, one of my clients said, Sean, this is such a useful service. Huh? When I got there, it was one price she gave me extra. Just because she really appreciated, you know, how I followed up with her. How I was able to connect with her and, and just the program itself. So it's really about creating that space for yourself. You know, letting people see you, identify with who you are. So when people meet me, they're like, oh, so Shan in the video is Shan in person. They're not two different people. You know, as you're saying that, I just realized I may have some business for you. Well, yeah, send <laughs> it my way. I'll gladly yeah, accept it. Do you recycle? Let's have, so do you, what, do you collect only paper stuff or do you do, let's say, let's say for the business I'm in, I replace conventional lighting fixtures with leds mm -hmm. and a lot of the times we we don't necessarily offer that service for the clients right but do you offer that service so i do have specialized services like that great my thing is i don't have i don't have the machinery to process things myself mm -hmm. but i would work with you to get that out of your place because you don't want to keep it here the clients the, compound, the clients mm -hmm. compound so that they are now able to do things differently and of course Depending on the, the process, so like for, like if it's e-waste or computers or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because e-waste requires a special method of disposal, you normally get a destruction certificate. So I would work with the e-waste recyclers to get you the destruction certificate and I will collect it from you, that kind of thing. Because there are some forms of waste that require a special method of disposal. Because it can't, our method of disposal is landfilling. B-term. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so not everything can go into a landfill. Before it was everything, you know, the, 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 from the cupboard to the floor, everything going in the landfill. Yeah. But with education and with trading, we've, even during my tenure at Swimcall, they've realized that there are some things because of the harmful effects that it could have on human health. That's why they stopped accepting e-waste at all of the landfill sites. And things like fluorescent bulbs and mm -hmm. chemical waste and all of these things require special methods of disposal. You have to render things inert. Like if you're dealing with chemicals and stuff, you have to make sure that, that they are non-reactive before you can dispose of that. And even those things that, that get rendered inert are kept separate from the domestic or the waste that is coming from your house. So you know utilizing different things like that because i try to teach people about what happens here you know we have an incinerator but that incinerator is for human waste body parts syringes biomedical waste that kind of thing so those things don't go to the landfill site either i'm just here pretending i know what an incinerator is <laughs> <laughs> When you go to the hospital, I think most of... I'm not sure if Port of Spain has one, but I know Montauk for sure does. Yes. There is... You'll see a, a, like a chimney, a stack, what we call a stack. That's where all of the biomedical waste goes there, so they collect all the bags. So normally, they see red bins. If you ever go to a clinic, get blood drawn, you see they put the syringe in a red, a little red container on the side. Right, that's biomedical waste. So that needs to be incinerated. And then the ash is what is disposed of. Yeah, so waste has so many different parts 
But more and more now, we realize that we need to diversify the economy a little bit. So encourage waste initiatives or waste related businesses or recycling related businesses so one of my huge things as well is composting i want to encourage people to compost to remove your organic waste don't throw it away anymore let's compost it right it's not manure so i'm teaching you something kevin compost is not manure i'm teaching you compost is not manure very good so <laughs> so um i teach them about the differences how they can go through the process of composting because that alone just removing that 28 percent of the waste that we generate at home is organic followed by plastic followed by paper so if we can remove that from our waste stream from at source in the house we are significantly cutting down the amount of waste that is ending up in our landfill sites you know i tell my students landfills have a lifespan the average lifespan of a landfill is 20 years old. Hey, I actually had that number crack in my mind, so right. I, I got something right today. <laughs> yes, right? Good, and all good. landfills have been open since 1980. The Beetham started in 1980. Guanapa, I believe, started in 1981. And Forest Park started in 1980. So if you, I get my kids to do the math. I say, so calculate 2018, subject 1980. How old is the landfill? They say, Miss, 38, 37 years, Miss. I said, right. So that's 18 years longer than it should have been existing, right? And then we, there's sanitary engineered landfilling. So that's a, so landfilling has different processes. I don't want to go into the science and bore the listeners too much, but you know, there are different methods of landfilling. Landfilling requires the covering of the waste. So dump, telling you all from now and encourage you when people say they go into the dump, that's not the word, please. It's a landfill because there's covering of the waste with dirt, with soil. Dumps, things are just left open in the air. Anything could get to it, that kind of thing. So the difference between a landfill and a dump is a cover? Yes. Okay. That's the simple difference. And then you have different methods of landfilling as well. But the simple difference is because the waste is covered with dirt. Because as the word says, you land fill. So you're filling, right? So because the, the children say, Pass, you mean the labas? Yeah. All right. Okay. So yeah. All right. Let's go into like what's next, and then you know, let's wrap up this. Sure. So what's next? I know you you had plans of um restoring fifty percent of quarries, yes. quarried lands yes. over the next three to five years. How's that? Yeah. Going? Once the government allow me to access a quarry, that's fine. <laughs> I'm being honest. Okay. But because most most of the quarries that are owned in the country are privately owned. Right. Right. National Quarries is the only state-run quarry. Because I was telling my husband, I said, I just need them to give me one quarry. Just give me one. And trust me, after they give me that one, they'll never regret it. So that is still a goal in terms of being able to rehabilitate in the next three to five years, 50% of quarries, whether it means me doing it myself or working with an organization, that is something that I definitely want to do. This year, two major things I want to happen. One is launch my sustainable school program. Two is create my recyclable product. Right? Um, so those are like my two major goals for 2018. Okay. And you also wanted to write a children's book about Oh, yes. How could I forget that? Um, How could you forget that? <laughs> so with the school program is I want to create an activity book for children. But this activity book, I want to be able to teach them about different things in there. So marine pollution, land pollution, waste and recycling. I want to be able to teach them 
about as many different things as possible. So not just waste alone or climate change alone. Or, because half of the time, at that age, they don't know what's climate change. But you can tell them about flooding, they know about that. <laughs> you know, so it's really taking the topic and reaching them at their level. You know, of course, they love coloring. My children love coloring. They love painting. So having little activities for them to do as well, too. But I want to develop a character that's going to be teaching them the different things in the activity book and be able to use that as a tool for parents at home to start teaching their kids about the environment. Because when I did a little survey, parents said, you know, we would love to have something that we can use at home to start teaching them. Because it's like, Sean, you can't come in our house too, you know. I mean, I can't be everywhere. <laughs> so I have to find ways and means of getting that done. And that's one of the ways I want to do it as well too. That's fantastic. That's really, really cool. Actually, so I had one question. So, so I know that you're focusing on educating others. Yes. But you're clearly also staying on top of all the new developments in your field. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Sign up for newsletters. <laughs> So I actually signed up for a couple. I signed up for things from UNEP. People tag me in articles on LinkedIn most of the time. I read a lot. So I try to follow a lot of companies whose work I admire as well. So the UNEP, different social enterprises as well, just to see what's going on in, with them in different parts of the world. What are they doing? Because as I said, my goal is to create an impact. And I want to be able to do that. I said, before I close my eyes, I want to know that I've created an impact. So I do some research. I, I sign up for newsletters for different magazines. So they let me know what's going on through the organization that I did my training with. As an educator, they send me stuff as well. That's the North American Association for Environmental Educators. So they send me stuff as well about what's happening with my colleagues in the field. And things that I can learn from too, new books that they would have put out, different articles or conferences that are coming up about marine pollution. I just signed up and got a free video, 22-minute video on the impacts of plastic on the marine environment. So I said, I'm going to share that with my kids and the students in the school as well. Yeah, because I really try to keep myself in the know. I never profess to be a guru of everything, but I like being informed so if somebody asks me a question, and, and also I'm not afraid to say I don't know something. That's important. Yeah, that's fine with me. I, I don't have to know everything. That's okay. Very important. Yes, yes. All right, Shan. So we're past that one hour mark here. So we got to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. Just tell us, where do we find you? Okay, so I am on Facebook at Sile Environmental, or if you just type in Sile T T S I E L T T, you'll find me. Same on Instagram. On LinkedIn, I am myself though, so you have to look for my name, S I A N Young. Um, I just started tweeting. This is some new. I was like, wow, there's a whole different world here. <laughs> but I tried to have Sile T T on Twitter, but I don't know what I did. So I think it's L. It's limited Sile on Twitter. Um, so that's Facebook, Instagram. LinkedIn, Twitter. Phone is 3819937. And my email is shan, S-I-A-N, dot young, at Sial Environmental, one word, dot com. So email, phone, and my social media 
pages. And I just want to say one thing before I close. There's a quote that I live by. And I always like to say it so when I get the opportunity to speak. Because it's very close to my heart. And it really puts things in perspective. And that quote is, remember, it is not always about doing things better. But sometimes we simply need to do better things. So that's my, that's my closing quote. All right, well, very nice. <laughs> good to close. Thanks a lot, Irvin. Thanks a lot, Zara, Shan. Podcast World, there you have it. If you enjoyed that episode, hit Shan at her email address that she just specified. If you enjoy this show, there are a lot more where I came from. Check out CaribbeanPowerLunch.com. Subscribe to the show at CaribbeanPowerLunch.com slash subscribe. This is season two finale. Podcast World, Eco Studios, we are out. Mm-hmm.